0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Three, two, one. When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me, Hall of Famer, Jim Calhoun, NASCAR icon, Dale Earnhardt Jr., Kirk Herbstreit is on the phone. Welcome back, everybody, to episode 490 for the podcast. And this will be America, the Air Tour Sports Podcast. It is Friday, February 4th, 2022, people. I hope everybody's doing well. I hope everybody is having a great day. I hope everybody's ready for a loaded Friday episode of the Air Tour Sports Podcast. So much to get into today. Here is a quick rundown because I want to jump right in. First, we will open by talking about this crazy Jimbo Fisher, NIL, Texas A&M controversy that has swept the internet over the last three, four, five days. Lane Kiffin got involved, Jimbo Fisher chirped back. And so there is a lot to peel back. I do think I will make you think about this story in maybe a slightly different way. From there, we'll talk about our old buddy Jim Harbaugh. Jim Harbaugh went to meet with the Vikings. The Vikings made it clear that he was not their top priority, and then all of a sudden he rushes back, and oh, I always wanted to be at Michigan, so we'll talk about that really fun, uh, interesting twist in the latest Harbaugh debacle, and from there, we'll wrap on some college hoops. Uh, Big game, obviously, on Thursday was Arizona-UCLA, the McHale Center, I was there, really fun atmosphere, really fun environment, uh, and fun game, and we'll talk about it a little bit to end the show. I should mention, by the way, before we get started here on this episode of the Aaron Sports Podcast, one quick announcement. I did say it at the end of last episode, but if you are at all interested in advertising or being a sponsor of the Aaron Sports Podcast, uh, feel free to reach out over these next couple months. You know, one, the show is continuing to grow. We are reaching a huge audience. Our numbers have actually doubled from last January to this January, and I fully expect those numbers to continue to grow. As we head into February and, of course, into March for the NCAA tournament and March Madness. And so, if you're interested in reaching a big audience, obviously, on top of that, I have my company, Aaron Torres Media, which is writing. It's a lot of different stuff. On top of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, feel free to reach out. Uh, you can email me, Aaron Torres Questions at gmail.com. You can email me, uh, you can DM me, you can Twitter, Instagram, whatever. But feel free to reach out if it's something you might be interested, obviously a great opportunity to put any product in front of a lot, a lot, a lot of people. With that said, though, it's time to get to the topic of the day, and boy, oh boy, oh boy, is this one a doozy. The topic of the day is this crazy, insane Jimbo Fisher, Texas A&M, NIL story, where essentially Texas A&M signs the number one class, they're accused of cheating, Uh, other SEC coaches are commenting, Jimbo Fisher is chirping, so let's get into it, let's talk about it, and let's discuss. Obviously, I want to give a little bit of background, a little bit of context before we get into it, and the background is pretty straightforward, and it's something that has really been a topic on this show for the last, I don't know, probably four to six weeks. That topic is, Texas A&M just signed a historically great recruiting class. Coming out of the first national signing day, It was ranked number one in the country. A few days afterward, they added a couple extra players after signing day, and it became historically, according to the computers, the greatest recruiting class in the history of college football. Now, it's a little bit different this year because you can sign more players because of the transfer portal, but it was considered the best class of all time, and then on top of that... Uh, The second signing day was earlier this week, and on the second signing day, they even added another couple of marquee players, and it firmly established itself as the greatest recruiting class in the history of college football. Doesn't guarantee anything, doesn't mean multiple national championships, but on paper, it is the greatest recruiting class in the history of college football. But what we also know is that basically in the history of recruiting, football, basketball, maybe other sports as well, Anytime any school does something that they have not historically done, oh, you know what happens next. The accusations, well, they have to be cheating. And I'm not saying that, the whatever. But the bottom line is, we know how it is. If you're not Alabama or Ohio State in football, if you're not Kentucky or Duke in basketball, well, it has to be something fishy going on. And that is something that has happened really over about the last two, two and a half months at Texas A&M. Dating back to the first signing day, there was this weird message board post and many of you sent it to me and I did not talk about it on this show. I don't deal with message board innuendo. Now, if somebody credible says something, I'll talk about it, right? Uh, I don't. If Dabo Sweeney is rumored to leave Clemson, I'm not gonna talk about it if it's on a message board, but if Bruce Feldman reports that Dabo Sweeney's willing to listen to LSU, that's a little bit of a different deal. So I bring it up because about six or eight weeks ago when A&M's recruiting class first picked up steam, There was a post on a message board that there was a slush fund, that the reason that Texas A&M signed the number one recruiting class in the history of college football is because there was a slush fund with $30 million from Texas A&M boosters, basically guaranteeing a million dollars per player. And I saw it, many of you sent it to me. I mean, I must've had probably half of a dozen to a dozen people send it to me, asking if I was gonna comment on it. I don't comment on message board innuendo, but here was the crazy part. After that message board post went live, then a website called Bro Bible, kind of fun men's lifestyle blog, whatever, no, no issue with them, posted about it. And then from there, this is the crazy part. A lot of the national media picked up on it. Again, I didn't talk about it, but I saw credible columnists, radio hosts, whomever, talking about this story as if it was fact, as if it was established that Texas A&M had a $30 million slush fund set up to pay recruits. And so that continued to pick up steam. Then earlier this week, Lane Kiffin gets in on the mix and Lane Kiffin basically says, I hope some of these schools have a luxury tax, uh, basically insinuating that Texas A&M went above the salary cap. And then finally on Wednesday afternoon, Jimbo Fisher commented on the whole situation and this is what Jimbo Fisher said. He said, There's no $30 million fund. There is no $5 million fund. There is no $10 million. This is garbage. It pisses me off. It comes from a site called Bro Bible by a guy named Slice Bread, and everybody runs with it. So it's written on the internet as gospel. How irresponsible is that? There's some very reputable writers in college football and sports that wrote it and have said it and done things that's unbelievable to me. When I first heard it, I laughed. Oh, yeah, what a clown. To which I say, first of all, shout out to Sliced Bread. I didn't know that somebody named Sliced Bread uh, was the one that broke this story. But what I would say is I am so on board with Jimbo Fisher about this. Now, I'm not naive enough to believe that not a single promise was made, not a single dollar was whatever. I'm not that dumb, and we will get into that in a minute. But what I would also say is the idea that this was taken as absolute gospel blew my mind. It has continued to blow my mind, and I'm glad that Jimbo Fisher spoke out in it. And now I want to transition to the next part of this conversation, which is this, and this is my opinion, and this is where I think I'm going to start to make you at least hopefully think about this in a slightly different way than maybe you have before. Because yes, maybe there is a $30 million slush fund. Maybe it'll get uncovered, maybe it'll be the biggest controversy in the history of college sports. But let me also put the opposite perspective out there as well. Why is it so crazy to think that Texas A&M and Jimbo Fisher just signed the number one recruiting class in the country and in the history of college football. And I know that is going to make you say, well, Alabama, Oh, Ohio State. Here's my question. Why is it so crazy to think that Texas A&M signed the greatest recruiting class in the history of college football? And when I explain why, I do think it'll hopefully make you think about this in a little bit of a different way. First off, Texas A&M has a lot to sell just on the surface, right? They have a lot to sell. They play in the toughest division of the toughest conference of college football. In the same way that 13 other schools sell the SEC, they can sell the SEC. On top of that, they play in a 100,000-seat stadium that we saw against Alabama is rocking. There's no better environment in college football at its peak. And also on top of that, they have every facility in America. So there's that obvious element of it. Playing the SEC, you know, uh, playing a 100,000-seat stadium, all the stuff that's normal. On top of that, I also think it's important to note that they have a very unique recruiting pitch as well. They've said, look, we're on the cusp. You can go to Alabama and you can be great, but they've already done it. You can go to Georgia, but they just won a national championship. You can go to Ohio State, but also you can come here. And you can come here and be the first, the first to win a national championship, the first to leave a legacy, the first to beat Alabama to go to the They uh, beat Alabama this year, but the first to win an SEC championship, the first to go to the playoff, the first to compete for a national championship—that's a pretty good recruiting pitch. On top of that, it's also worth noting they're probably in the most talent-rich area of the country, right around the Houston area. And I looked it up today just for fun. They signed, I believe, I think sixteen or fifteen top one hundred players in this recruiting class. Nine of them are from Texas. So so, so the, the baseline, and I saw this stat of if they had only signed players from Texas, they still would have had something like a top 15 to top 20 recruiting class. So there's all that surface level stuff that, I'm sorry, but you can see the scenario where they would sign a great recruiting class this year. But on top of that, there is old extra context that I do think needs to be considered for this specific conversation, this specific year, with this specific program, Texas A&M. The first is this, Texas A&M is coming off the greatest season that they've had in 30 years, not this past season in 2021, but the 2020 season before, and all of you listening follow recruiting. I know you do, because if you didn't, if you didn't care about recruiting, you wouldn't listen to a college sports show that's almost all college sports, okay? So I bring it up, because if you follow recruiting, you know that the best recruiting classes generally happen after one thing. After a great season, it's not usually felt that year, it's felt the following cycle. And so what do I mean by that? Most of Georgia's class was signed before they won a national championship this year. So in theory, they're gonna get a bump next year when Kirby Smart can sell all these juniors of, hey, come here, you can win a national championship and you can do everything else. Michigan, we're gonna talk about Jim Harbaugh in a second but it was very interesting to see the fact that he got four, five, six commitments after they made the playoff in this 2021 class, and I suspect that in, or in this 2022 class, late commitments, and I suspect that he will have his best recruiting class ever in the 2023 cycle. That's the facts. The facts are that you usually have your best recruiting classes after your best season. So in Texas A&M's case, they have a historic season in 2020, Never forget, they finished 9-1, and they finished 5th in the college football playoff rankings, they were basically, uh, you know, a, a, a committee vote or two away from making the college football playoff, and so yes, it's natural that they are going to have a recruiting bump after going 9-1, and because remember, on top of everything they already had to sell, now they said, look, We were this close to making the college football playoff. Come here and be the ones that put us over the top. Everybody recruits well after their best season ever. It's not directly after the season. It's not the month or two after. It's the following cycle. So Texas A&M has a great 2020 season. Naturally, the 2021-2022 recruiting class is where they are going to make their best efforts. The juniors that watch them almost make the playoff then become seniors and get to watch and, 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 and want to be part of what they just saw, okay? And by the way, expect Georgia to have a great recruiting class next year. Expect Michigan to have its best recruiting class ever after their success of this year. On top of that, and I think this is important to note as well, you know what else Texas A&M had going for it in this specific cycle that absolutely helped their, this specific situation? Everyone around them was a mess, LSU fired its head coach. Florida fired its head coach. Oklahoma had its coach leave. So on top of the fact you're getting all these guys from Texas that are already good, here's what else he needs to know. One of the highest rated players that signed to Texas A&M, defensive lineman, Gabriel Brownlow Dindy, number 16 player in the country, defensive lineman from Florida. You know where he was committed to right up until the middle of December? He was committed to Oklahoma. And then Lincoln Riley left, and he said, I don't want to go to LA, so I'm going to go with the school that I chose over Oklahoma, Texas A&M. So Texas A&M got, I think Jimbo O'Fisher would even admit, got kind of lucky on that one. Had nothing to do with slush fund, this, da, da, da this, that. Kid was committed to Oklahoma, coaching change happens, they get him. Shamar Stewart, five-star who committed on whatever it was, Wednesday, chose Texas A&M, at one point was considering Florida. Well, guess what? Florida fired their coach. Also considering Miami. Well, guess what? Miami had a new head coach that Shamar Stewart had no relationship with until a month and a half ago. Probably helped Texas A&M in the recruiting process. Beyond that, Jacoby Matthews, four-star, high four-star safety from Louisiana, committed to Texas A&M. You know what happened there? Really liked LSU. And then a funny thing happened. Coach O got fired. And then he had to reevaluate, and he could go with the coaching staff that he's barely known for a month Or he could go with the coaching staff that he's known for a year and a half at Texas A&M. And so I do think the context matters. And I should mention, by the way, as well, it's not as though Jimbo Fisher is some schlub. He's won a national championship. He's put a million guys into the NFL. And so to me, why is it so crazy that a school coming off their most successful season in 30 years, the 2020 season, the class after is great. It's led by a a, a great in-state crop of players. And it also came in a year where all these other weird coaching changes gave AM stability. Like it's not that inconceivable that this specific set of circumstances could set up the number one recruiting class in the country. But let's take it a step further. Let me ask you a simple question. Even if there is a slush fund, let, let, let's step away from, because I, I think this was, listen, let's step away from the there's no slush fund at all. But let's take it a step further. What if there is a slush fund? Well, guess what? You know who else had a chance to set one up? Georgia and Alabama and Ohio State and Texas and USC and whoever. And I bring it up to just say this. The NIL, NIL has changed everything, okay? And we don't have to like it, and I don't have to like the idea of a kid getting paid a million dollars, and I'm not accusing Texas A&M of doing it. But I'm just saying, if a slush fund is set up if you're going to pay a recruit a million dollars to come there and call it NIL. Unfortunately, that's not really illegal under the current setup of NCA rules. Now, I know there's some weird verbiage about pay for play and recruiting. At the end of the day, anyone could do exactly what Texas A&M did. And i if this is true, and I don't believe it's true. Jimbo Fisher says it's not true. I know its a, he's obviously incentivized to say that. But if something like this is in place, it's allowed under the rules. And we don't have to like it. I don't like it. I don't for it to be clear. If this is true, and I'm not saying it's true, I don't like the idea of recruits getting a million dollars before they've proven anything. Because you know who I think that hurts? The players on the roster that deserve the money that have actually done something for the university. When Quinn Ewers makes it a, a million dollars at Ohio State, you know who that hurts? It hurts the players that are actually playing. And so I hope that it's not true, that there's just some slush fund with a million dollars in it for each individual signing. But at the same time, it's not against the rules. Now, I do think NIL needs to be regulated. At some point, I'm gonna do a separate show on how we can fix NIL so that it doesn't become what people are accusing Texas A&M of doing. But at the same time, it's not illegal, and we don't have to like it. But even if we don't like it, it is not against the rules. It's no different, by the way, than Caleb Williams playing for Lincoln Riley at Oklahoma. Lincoln Riley leaving and Caleb Williams just going with Lincoln Riley to USC. That's the way the rules are set up. We don't have to like the rules, but there's nothing we could do. And with Texas and m if this is the case, it's not really against the rules anymore. And if this is what they're doing, you don't think that everybody else in college football is going to do something similar? It's no different than anything else that has ever at one point been a recruiting advantage. At one point having a football facility was a recruiting advantage. Then you know what happened? Somebody figured out, hey, kids like these big, shiny, fancy facilities. And so guess what happened? Everybody built a football facility. And then from there, it was about paying high-profile assistant coaches, and we'll bring in this offense court, we'll do that. And then it was whatever, and whatever the next thing is. And I bring it up to say, if this is the case, you don't think Alabama's putting a plan together with its boosters to get something similar? You don't think if Georgia believes that this is true, they're not putting together something similar with their boosters? Now, it's on the NCAA to stop this from happening. But per the rules... It's not really illegal, and so to me, I have no problem with it because this is what this is. These are the rules that were put in place. So even if Jimbo Fisher did this, and even if Texas A and M did this, well, guess what? Who has been clamoring for college athletes to get paid forever? All of you. And by the way, I have no problem with it. I've said from the beginning. You can go back and listen to podcasts from three years ago where I said if we don't put some rules in place, it's going to become playing paying for the highest bidder, going to the highest bidder, players going to the highest bidder? I said that three years ago. I said that whatever it was when Gavin Newsom and LeBron James, they were the first ones to talk about NIL. First NIL rule was put on the books in California. I talked about it then. I said if we don't put any regulations in place, it is going to be the wild, wild west. It is going to be pay for play. It is going to be going to the highest bidder. I don't like it, but that was always the reality, and this is what you guys and girls told me you wanted. I actually thought Jimbo Fisher brought up a great point the other day when he was talking about this. He said, how come we all celebrated the fact that Nick Saban talked about Bryce Young making 800K or making a million or whatever he made? How come we celebrated this happening and that happening, but now all of a sudden, it's not true, but what if it was? And that's my whole point, too. I think there's, uh, listen, I'm not naive enough to think that absolutely nothing happened, that no promises were made, that not a single dollar went to a single one of these players. But at the same time, this is what y'all wanted. This is where it's going if we don't put in rules. And so to me, I give Jimbo Fisher credit. I happen to think that it's a scenario where, it's a scenario where you have a great program with every resource available to it that is coming off a historically great year with a national championship winning coach in an off-season where there was chaos at LSU, chaos at Miami, chaos at Florida, chaos at Oklahoma that the new head coach was allowed to take, that, that Texas A&M was able to take advantage of. So to me, I just think if you really break it down, it kind of makes sense. But even if you don't, this is the world that everybody wanted. This was the world where we said, let's pay our athletes, let's take care of them. Now maybe we need to revisit those rules, but even if we need to revisit th- those rules, those are the rules that are currently in place. And so like I said, I don't like the idea of a player who's never made it, never played a down making a million dollars. I didn't like it, by the way, when it happened with Quinn Ewers a year ago, eight months ago, whenever he enrolled at Ohio State. But this is the world that you guys and girls wanted to live in. Well, now we're here. And so, again, maybe next episode, maybe sometime next week, maybe once we get past this, this stuff, I will tell you how I would regulate NIL and the transfer portal. I think there's three easy steps to make all of this a much simpler process. But right now, these are the rules in place. And if they stay this way, guess what? If Texas A&M had an advantage this year, Alabama's gonna figure it out, and Georgia's gonna figure it out, and USC's gonna figure it out, and Oklahoma's gonna figure it out, just in the same way that every other recruiting advantage, everybody else catches up. And so to me, it will be fascinating to see what happens, but to me, I am gonna defend Jimbo Fisher because I just don't understand why it's so crazy to think that this guy signed such a great recruiting class in 2022. Woo, what a show start. What a start to this show. That's what I wanna do. I want to take a quick break. I want to come back. I want to very briefly talk Jim Harbaugh. I don't even know if I got five minutes on me on Jim Harbaugh. We'll come back and we'll talk a little Jim Harbaugh. Because <laughs> how about our boy Harbaugh, man? Unbelievable. We're going to come back, talk Harbaugh, and then obviously we'll talk a little college hoops as well. I'm going to take a quick break. I will be right back. All right, everybody. I am back. Good to be back. Good to be back. Do you want to switch gears? Do want to get to Jim Harbaugh? Before we do, really quickly, I should mention um, there are some Brian Harson rumors out there. Brian Harson, obviously the head coach of the Auburn Tigers. And what I would say about Brian Harson is what I just said a minute ago with the Jimbo Fisher NIL slush fund rumors. I don't deal in internet innuendo. And I'm not saying this Brian Harson report can't be true, and it's a little bit more than a message board thing at this point. But um, I'm not going to comment on every single thing that happens across the internet on any given day, even though this one feels a little bit more credible than what was reported about Jimbo Fisher, NIL, all that good stuff. And so I bring it up to just say, uh, I am very aware of the rumor. And if the rumor is found to be true, we will absolutely talk. Oh, we will talk about that one. But at the same time, I can't, I can't break down every internet rumor and innuendo uh, that comes to light on this show, because if I did, the show would go on in perpetuity, because there's so much craziness going on on the internet, but I just want you to know, I am very aware of the Brian Harson rumor, I do think out of respect to him, to his family, it's not fair for me to really speculate, and if it becomes true, like I said, we will definitely dive into it. With that said though, do want to switch gears, and let's get to our old buddy, Jim Harbaugh. Not sure if you remember last show, it was on Wednesday, thought it was a pretty good show, and on that show I talked about Jim Harbaugh, the NFL, and the Minnesota Vikings. And as I recorded, literally as I recorded, Jim Harbaugh was meeting with the Minnesota Vikings in Minnesota. Few hours later, meeting gets over, few hours later after this podcast is posted, we get the big, bold, triumphant headline, Jim Harbaugh is, announces he's returning to Michigan. The problem is that it really isn't that simple. Because if you really read the headlines and if you really read the details, you find out pretty quickly, Jim Harbaugh was never offered the Minnesota Vikings job. Minnesota was not going to offer Jim Harbaugh the Minnesota Vikings job. And so I bring it up and I want to talk about it now because I do think, I I did have a thought as it comes to Jim Harbaugh. Jim Harbaugh very clearly pursued NFL opportunities this year in a way that he never has. And I do wonder, if he couldn't get an NFL job in this particular cycle, coming off the season that he did at Michigan, 12-1, and 12-2, playoff, Big Ten championship, beat Ohio State. If he could not get an NFL opportunity off that, then I truly believe that it might be time to put aside the idea of head coach Jim Harbaugh in the NFL and the reality that he is going to spend the rest of his career with the Michigan Wolverines. And so let's talk about it, let's deb- discuss, let's debate because if you, if you follow just the headlines, you would have thought that Jim Harbaugh, oh, he made a triumphant return to Michigan. Oh, he's turning down the NFL. He's coming back. He's this, he's that. Hail to the victors. But it's not that simple. It never is. Because if you read the details, what you know is this. As I said a minute ago, Jim Harbaugh went to Minnesota to meet with the Vikings. Now, to his credit, he was one of three finalists for the job. He Met with the team for nine hours. But what is also important to note is that he was not offered the job. Nine-hour interview, was not offered the job, did not turn it down, did not return to Michigan over just simply, he didn't return to Michigan. There was no other job for him to turn down to return to Michigan. Instead, he leaves the meeting. They say, thank you for your time. I don't know every detail, but at some point it became pretty clear that while he was a finalist, Minnesota is going to eventually hire Kevin O'Connell the offensive coordinator of the Los Angeles Rams. And so we have this Minnesota Vikings situation in which Jim Harbaugh clearly pursued the Minnesota Vikings. To his credit, he got an interview, but he didn't get the job. And he didn't get the job in a cycle where, oh, by the way, let's never forget, he also, as we discussed on last episode, very publicly leaked that the Las Vegas Raiders were interested and very publicly leaked that the Chicago Bears were interested. Well, we know for certain that the Chicago Bears did not offer him a job. They didn't even offer him an interview. I don't even know if he got a call back. We also know that the Las Vegas Raiders did not seriously pursue him. And so that is three marquee jobs in a coaching cycle where over a quarter of the jobs in the NFL had flipped over. Jim Harbaugh couldn't get one of them. And so when I look at this whole Jim Harbaugh thing in the bigger picture, I do wonder, is it possible that we have seen the end of the Jim Harbaugh era in the NFL? He clearly pursued NFL jobs. There was certainly interest. But never forget, five, six years ago, when he first left the NFL for Michigan, coming off that run in San Francisco, three NFC championship games, one Super Bowl, a near Super Bowl win, Jim Harbaugh was the hottest candidate in the NFL. He could have left after his first season, after his second season, after his third season, and absolutely unequivocally gotten an NFL job. Now, fast forward to 2022. And I'm starting to wonder if it ever happens again. And it's partly because of Jim Harbaugh, but it's partly because of where the NFL is going, right? Jim Harbaugh would have been the ideal candidate six, seven, eight, nine years ago. Sort of, uh, he wasn't young, but he was in his early 50s and he was the quirky guy, but he was winning a bunch of games. Well, time has changed. And time has changed, especially in the NFL. And this isn't even a criticism of Harbaugh, who has been, i you know, you guys listen to the show. I've been uh, the, the biggest Jim Harbaugh supporter that there is. But as you look at what the NFL is doing, I don't know that he fits the criteria of what the NFL is looking for in their hires anymore. Jim Harbaugh's older. Jim Harbaugh really doesn't have a specialty on either side of the ball. He's more of the overseer, the CEO type head coach, like Dabo Sweeney, like Coach O was. I know Jim Harbaugh's background is in offense, but at this point, he doesn't run the offense. He doesn't call plays, that's Josh Gaddis. So he's more of a CEO head coach. He's older. He's kind of the the older head coach, not really relatable. The players like him, but he's not that young whatever. And so when I look at what the NFL is doing in their hirings, look at all of the hirings that the NFL is doing right now. And I know it's Copycat League and trends change all the time. But look at the hires this cycle. Young, offensive-minded, relatable, all those things, basically the Sean McVay prototype. And we can make fun of the Sean McVay prototype, and we did it a few years ago when all the head coaches that were hired basically looked like him, young, they had stubble, they were handsome, they were this, they were that. But the Sean McVay prototype's clearly working, right? Sean McVay, two Super Bowls in five years. Sean McVay might win a Super Bowl, might be the youngest head coach to ever win a Super Bowl if things are successful. Oh, by the way, the guy he's coaching against in the Super Bowl, is the—it's the uh, it's the first time ever we've had two coaches under the age of 40 in the Super Bowl. And so I do believe that the NFL, everybody's looking for that next Sean McVay and that Sean McVay prototype. Young, offensive-minded, relatable. Those are not words that you would describe Jim Harbaugh as. So you look at the hires this year, Nathaniel Hackett, Denver Broncos, fits that bill. Uh, Kevin O'Connell, the guy I just mentioned, going to uh, the Minnesota Vikings, fits that bill. On top of that, uh, you know, The guys that are already in the league, McVay, Matt LaFleur, Green Bay Packers, Cliff Kingsbury, Brandon Staley, all fit the same bill. And I do just wonder if we're in this world where the NFL has moved on from the Jim Harbaugh type coach. Not saying that he could never be a head coach again. It only takes one team to call you. But at the end of the day, there are certain trends going on in the NFL, and I don't know that Harbaugh fits him. And so now I think we have to talk about the reality that he will eventually retire at Michigan, and if he does, I'm just fascinated to see what the next four, five, six years look like under Jim Harbaugh. 58 years old, going to be 59 by the end of next season, coming off his first Big Ten title. What does the next few years look like? Because I think on the one hand, I do see a lot of positive signs, right? We all we all saw the, uh, you know, we all read the headlines last year and I talked about it a lot on the show. But to Jim Harbaugh's credit, he basically shook up everything and it worked. Younger staff, again, more dynamic, relatable, good recruiters, whatever. And Michigan, to its credit, and I talked about it in the previous segment, is coming off a really good recruiting class. They are set at the quarterback position. Cade McNamara's coming back. His backup, J.J. McCarthy, might be better. And we saw J.J. McCarthy in that college football playoff game. He actually was the only guy that could make plays against Georgia. And so Jim Harbaugh may finally have his quarterback of the present, quarterback of the future, and J.J. McCarthy. On top of that, I'll say this. The Big Ten, there's no certainties, not even Ohio State. And I do think Ohio State bounces back, and I trust Ryan Day, and this isn't a Ryan Day is completely overrated, blah, 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 this and that. I don't think so. But at the same time, we all watch that Rose Bowl. I know Ohio State has a new defensive coordinator. Ohio State's got a lot of work to do on defense. They're going to score a bunch of points with C.J. Stroud, Jackson Smith, and Jigba, Marvin Harrison Jr., Travion Henderson, but they're going to give up a lot of points, too, unless that new defensive coordinator, that new defensive staff can work a ton of magic. Beyond that, look, I know Michigan State's on the rise. We'll see if Mel Tucker can maintain it. We know Penn State is going to be Penn State, but Penn State's kind of plateaued the last two, three years. And so if if we now know Harbaugh's coming back, I do think there is an avenue to continue to win at the highest level. I don't think he's winning the Big Ten next year. I don't think he's beating Ohio State every year, but I can see the scenario where he now has the foundation of a program that can beat Ohio State, and we talked about this after the Ohio State game. I could see the scenario where Harbaugh can beat Ohio State two out of every five years three out of every five years who knows if if Ryan Day goes to the NFL at some point then what happens at Ohio State do they go get Luke Fickle do they go get somebody else whatever but what I would also say is you know this uh, I I think there's a possibility that Michigan has a ton of success going forward I also think there's a reality that this program was going in the wrong direction heading into this year now to Harbaugh's credit he changed up everything shook up his staff kind of stepped back wasn't so much of uh, 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 a micromanager let his staff do whatever But all the stars seemed to align last year for Michigan, and so now we're going to see how good Harbaugh is, because the NFL clearly was not interested in Jim Harbaugh, and again, that's always subject to change. But it looks like he is going to be at Michigan not only this year, but for the foreseeable future. Even in that statement, he told Ward-Manuel, he said, this isn't going to be an annual thing with the NFL. I just wanted to scratch that itch to see if it was there it wasn't. I'm back. I'm ready to work, and I'm ready to retire here. Do I really believe him? do I really believe he will never pursue the NFL again? I can't say that I do. But I do wonder, man, Michigan's coming off the best season that they've had in decades. Jim Harbaugh is at the highest level that he can be as a head coach in terms of success, in terms of whatever, and he still couldn't get an NFL job when he very clearly pursued him. Again, this was not, uh, you know, I'm gonna, t- I'm gonna take the call, I- I'm, gonna- I'm gonna listen if they-, if they call me. This was him very clearly pursuing at least three NFL head coaching jobs and none of them being interested. All right, this is what I want to do. I want to take a quick break. I want to come back. Do want to talk a little bit of college hoops. I was at that Arizona UCLA game on Thursday night. It was awesome. We had a blast. I will be right back. All right, we'll get back to college basketball in a minute, but before we do, I want to welcome back our partners at DraftKings and the DraftKings Sportsbook who have an incredible offer with the Super Bowl coming up next week. Here's the deal. First-time users, $5 money line bet on either team. It could be LA. It could be Cincinnati. All you got to do is pick the winner. Don't need a point spread. Don't need an overrunner. None of that. $5, and if that team wins, $280 $280 in free bets, courtesy of DraftKings and the DraftKings Sportsbook. Tell them Torres sent you. Here's how you take advantage. First of all, click the link in the show description and sign up for a new account with DraftKings Sportsbook and make your first deposit. Make a $5 bet on either team. Los Angeles, Cincinnati, whoever you want, $5. If that team wins an automatic $280 in free bets, courtesy of DraftKings and the DraftKings Sportsbook, it is the best offer going, so make sure to take advantage now. If you or somebody you know has a gambling problem Crisis Counseling and Referral Services can be accessed by calling 1-800-GAMBLER 1-800-426-2537 in Illinois Gambling Problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in Michigan New Jersey Pennsylvania West Virginia Wyoming 1-800-9WITHIN in Indiana 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado one 800 off in Iowa 1-888-532-3500 in Virginia one 800 step in Arizona or call or text Tennessee Redline 1-800-889-9789 in Tennessee Must be 21 plus or over to enter 80 plus or over in Wyoming Arizona Colorado Illinois Indiana Iowa Michigan New Jersey Pennsylvania Tennessee Virginia West Virginia, Wyoming, New York, Louisiana only. Minimum $5 deposit, minimum $5 wager. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for full terms and conditions. All right, everybody. I am back. Good to be back. Good to be back. Do want to wrap the show. First of all, thank you, DraftKings. DraftKings Sportsbook. $5 bet. Super Bowl. 280 in free cash. Can't beat it. Sign up now. Link is in the show description. With that said, though, I do want to switch gears and I do want to wrap the show with a little bit of college hoops. And there hasn't been a ton that has happened in college hoops since the last episode on Wednesday, but there was one big game and it came to you from the beautiful McHale Center game that I happen to be at. Number seven, Arizona. Number three, UCLA. Final score, Arizona, 76-66. Let's talk about it. Let's discuss, let's debate. Before we do, though, first let me say this. Again, I was in Tucson for the game. My first ever trip to Tucson, this place is awesome, okay? I don't tell you guys and girls how to spend your money. I know everybody works hard, this and that. If you're a college basketball fan and you have the opportunity to get out to Tucson and go to McHale Center for a college basketball game, do it, okay? First of all, Tucson, beautiful city, has been a little cold this week, historic lows. It was like 29 degrees overnight. I didn't know it got that cold in Arizona. But at the same time, beautiful city, Base of the mountains, beautiful views. I'm not much of a golfer. It was too cold to golf anyway. I'm told the courses are pretty, but I had a blast. Really good time, really good food. Really appreciate the hospitality of those of you in Tucson and all of you who actually reached out, listeners of the pod, and said, hey, do this, go here, come here, whatever. Thank you guys for your support. What I will also say, McHale Center was awesome. It was my first time there. I will tell you, I haven't been to every college basketball venue, but I have been a lot to a lot of the big ones. Rupp Arena, Kentucky. Pauley Pavilion, UCLA. Carrier Dome, Syracuse. Gamble Pavilion, UConn. I've been to a lot of the big ones. I'm not saying Mikhail was the best, but it was right up there in the short conversation. 14,000-seat arena. Everybody's wearing red. Everybody's chanting, U of You of A. Just a crazy, loud, raucous environment, really fun. It's it's a, one of those weird buildings. It kind of reminds me of a little bit like if you've ever been to Madison Square Garden where it looks bigger on TV than it is in reality. And so it's a small building. It got really loud at times, really loud with a couple of those Kirk Crease threes. And oh, by the way, credit to UCLA because they did a, a couple times. They really silenced the crowd in that building. And so let's talk about it as, again, Arizona wins 76-66. But again, first of all, Tucson's awesome. Come if you can. But Arizona wins, and, and this is one, and I talk about this sometimes, guys and girls, is that sometimes there's no hot take, right? UCLA last week hosted Arizona Pauly Pavilion, absolutely punked them. I thought there was a little bit more of a hot take there where it was like UCLA let the whole world know that we ain't, don't forget about us. We made a Final Four last year, we returned intact, we went on COVID pause. You guys forgot, but don't forget, we're really, really, really good. This one, I don't know if there was a hot take. Arizona needed to win this game at home to prove that they are right up in the mix as a national championship contender, good enough to beat anybody. You get swept by UCLA. This is officially UCLA's uh, conference. They're, they're, they're the team that has the edge for the number one seed in the Pac-12 tournament, regular season title. They're the team that's potentially going to get that number one seed that you're so coveting. And so this is what great college basketball games and rivalries are about. You lose on the road. You got to defend your home court. That is absolutely what Arizona did. Now, in the bigger picture, what I would say is this. I did get to spend a little bit of time at practice for Arizona on Wednesday before the game. I'm not going to give away any state secrets here. I'm not going to tell you what I saw. But the one thing that did stand out that I can say, and I think it played a factor in Thursday night's game, and I think it's going to be a factor going forward. Arizona might be the most physically impressive team in college basketball this year, and I think that showed on Thursday night in the game. First of all, what do I mean by physically impressive? And by the way, we got Kentucky fans, we got uh, Purdue fans, we got uh, Baylor fans, whoever. I'm not saying your team isn't awesome. I'm not saying they're not good. I'm not saying that they can't beat Arizona. That's not what I'm saying. But when I say most physically impressive, when Arizona walks off the bus, I'll tell you this. I've seen Duke in person this year. I've seen Gonzaga in person this year. I've seen UCLA in person this year. I've seen Villanova in person this year. When Arizona walks off the bus, there is nobody that is more impressive. You look across the board. Um, this is just their guards. Their guards. Ben Matherin, 6'6". Six six. Daylon Terry, 6'7". Okay, and these guys are athletic. They're skilled. They can play. Uh, Kirk Crease said their point guard is about 6'3", six, 6'4". Six, and then in the front court... Two legitimate seven-footers that can both play. Christian Coloco, 30-year player in the program. One of the, you know, Sean Miller left over, was in the program for a few years with Sean Miller. And then on top of that, Umar Balo, who I give a ton of credit, was a really uh, good backup at Gonzaga that barely saw the court. He's giving them real minutes. And and again, I was watching him in practice and don't want to, you know, share any state secrets that aren't supposed to get out. But I mean, he looks good. He seems to be getting better every day. He I thought he played big minutes down the stretch, four points, eight rebounds for Arizona. But as I said, I think that size is going to give everybody problems. And I know for a fact it gave UCLA fits on Saturday or on Thursday. Arizona was plus eight in the rebounding margin. Arizona had nine block shots and they were really able to exert their will. Bigger, more athletic at the rim. UCLA's kind of got those physical, tough, low post players, but they're not super big and super athletic. And so in a lot of ways, it reminded me of that first game of the year with Kentucky versus Duke. Kentucky's really good, but Duke gave them fits with Mark Williams and Paulo Banqueiro, uh, you know, down low. And I, I saw a lot of the same from Arizona on Thursday night in which UCLA, they just caught the ball in the post. They couldn't do anything with it. Coloco is huge. Umar Balo is huge. uh, Terry and Ben Mather on the wing are huge. And I think that is going to cause problems for every team that they've played all year. And it's certainly reflected in the stats because I think when we think of Arizona, we think of this ha- ha- uh, fast-paced uh, European offense, all that good stuff. Arizona's a monster on the boards. Number four in the country in rebounding margin, plus nine uh, on the season in rebounding. They are one of the top rebounding teams overall in college basketball as well. And it's just they're, they're just a team that I really do believe that that size, that athleticism, uh, the rim protection, you look at what they do in the paint they're going to cause fits for everybody they're also top 10 in the country in blocks per game as well now in terms of UCLA let me also say this you know Arizona won the game but as weird as it sounds i think you can come away as equally impressed with UCLA because again UCLA they won the first half of this of this uh you know of this rivalry of this matchup last week they not only won they punked UCLA they punked Arizona at Pauley Pavilion so you kind of know that coming back to Paul, uh, coming to McHale, and by the way, there was an incident after the game at McHale, unfortunate incident, where a UCLA player spit on a fan. If you haven't seen it yet, he was arrested. I don't know what's going on with the legal situation there, but that's neither here nor there. But I, I want to get back to the game, and I want to talk a little bit about UCLA because I'll say this. I talked to the Arizona coaching staff a little bit after the game, and they said, man, those guys are tough. Those guys, think about what you what happened with UCLA. They won the first game. They already had the edge. They come to McHale. Arizona knows they need to win this game. Arizona has all these things that they can fix from last game to get right against UCLA. They jump up by 17 points against UCLA in the first half. And UCLA battled all the way back. UCLA battled all the way back. It was a three-point game with what? Like three minutes to go, four minutes to go? It was 64-61 with under four minutes to go. And so when I look at this game, yeah, Arizona proved I believe they can play with anybody in college basketball, but I believe UCLA, which came into the season, never forget, people said, I had them preseason number one, and you know what everybody said? Torres, you're overrating them off a Final Four run. Torres, just because they made a Final Four, they were an 11 seed. You don't know what you're talking about. Well... UCLA was number three in the country coming into this one. They're 16-3 and three after this one. Um, you know, their two losses are to Gonzaga on a neutral court and to uh, to, to a- at Arizona. Their other loss was to Oregon in a game in overtime where they had no fans in the stands. Guarantee if they had fans in the stands at Pauly, they'd probably win this one. But to me, I think in a lot of ways, you can come away being very impressed with Arizona in this game. They needed a great effort, and they got it. But I think you got to give UCLA credit, too, for going into a raucous, hostile McHale center and coming out with a victory. Finally, first of all, so, so I guess what I would say is, in the bigger picture, I, I look at both of these teams as true national championship contenders, two teams that can win it all. I think they both have their strengths and weaknesses. You know, it was funny, I was talking to kind of a... a, a A coach not related to either doesn't coach at Arizona or UCLA. And he did say, I was asking him about Arizona the other day. He did say a lot is going to fall on the hands of Kirk Creesa, their point guard at Arizona. In other words, they really only have one point guard. Can he be good enough? Is he that kind of player? Right now, he's averaging 10.5 points, 5.5 assists, but also a couple turnovers per game. And I think that becomes the question with Arizona. I think with UCLA, it's the size and athleticism down low. This year, there's some really good front court players, whether it is at Duke, whether it is at uh, Arizona is obviously one, uh, Gonzaga's one, obviously Purdue is one, Illinois has some good front court players. So I just bring all of that up to say that, uh, you know, I think those are the weaknesses of each team is that Arizona right now, are they good enough at point guard and what happens? We know how the tournament works couple bad foul calls here, or twisted ankle there. Do they have enough depth at the guard spot? And then I think UCLA, do they have enough size and physical size and length in the front court? What I would say to kind of wrap, I had one big picture of thought on both of these teams, and I do believe they're both national championship contenders. It's kind of crazy how each team was inherited because UCLA, even though it's Mick Cronin's third year, most of the guys that are playing were inherited from the previous staff. How both coaches were, Really, kind of inherited the perfect situation, right? I think I've talked about it before with Tommy Lloyd, Sean Miller, Arizona. Everybody knows I've been a Sean Miller defender because I think some of the uh, some of the coverage of him has been unfair. But what also can't be denied is that Sean Miller left the cupboard bare. Cupboard full, excuse me. He absolutely left the cupboard full for Tommy Lloyd. And then I believe it's almost a perfect situation where the players that Sean Miller left, Tommy Lloyd, because of the way he wants to play, fast, aggressive, up and down, back and forth, pace, style, fast, this, that, score quickly, European, pace and space, all that stuff, that he inherited almost the perfect situation. Mick Cronin, same deal. I know the, uh, he's been there three years, but all the players he inherited are still there. Tiger Campbell he inherited from Steve Alford. Cody Riley, still Steve Alford. Jules Bernard, Dave Singleton, Steve Alford. And so I bring it up because, I bring it up because, think about the players that he inherited. Hadn't really won much, had struggled, had to buy into his philosophy, and now they're that Cincinnati, banging, low post, tough, physical team that he had at Cincinnati, only with players that were probably a little bit better from the baseline. And so, like I said, I think if there was one big takeaway, it's that there really was no big takeaway. These are two really good teams. I believe they're good enough to win the national championship. I've said for weeks, I don't believe there's one great team in college basketball this year. But instead, probably about, I, I think the, the list is is starting to get whittled, but I think about eight to 10 that are really good and on any given night can beat anybody else. I think Arizona and UCLA are absolutely in that mix. And I hope you had as much fun watching that game on Thursday night as I did being there. All right, with that said, I think it's time for me to get out of here. I want to thank you guys and girls for listening to today's Tour Sports Podcast. If you're not subscribed already, please make sure to do so. Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure you subscribe to the Tour Sports Podcast. Also, make sure to rate and review the show Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media, at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram. I did post a bunch of pictures from Tucson there. Uh, Aaron Torres Podcast questions at gmail.com. Again, if you are interested in advertising as we ramp up towards March, it's going to be awesome, baby. Going to be awesome. I encourage you to check it out. encourage you to reach out if you are at all interested. With that said, it is time for me to get out of here. I want to thank you guys and girls for listening, and it's time to go. Shout-out to Torrent Craig. Shout-out to Rachel who hates my voice. I will be back Monday with an all-new episode of the Air tour Sports Podcast. Have a good weekend, party people. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse with family